Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this episode, you'll hear John Flynn. His penis, it leaned to one side, but then it straightened itself out at the end. So I felt like I was jerking off the lead pipe from Clue. That and more. But first, I want to say, you know, when you think about the best time to go to the post office, you're probably guessing before work, after work, during lunch, you're wrong. That's when it's most crowded. Everyone's going at those times. The truth is there's no convenient time to go to the post office. That's why you need Stamps.com. With Stamps.com, you access all the services of the post office right from your desk. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your computer and printer. And you just hand it to your mail carrier. And unlike the post office, Stamps.com is open 24-7, no lines. So you can get your mailing and shipping done whenever's convenient for you. We use stamps.com at risk and the story studio and we love it and right now you can use our promo code risk for this special offer it's a no risk trial plus a hundred and ten dollar bonus offer that includes a digital scale and up to fifty five dollars free postage so don't wait go to stamps.com before you do anything else click on the microphone at the top of the home page and type in risk that's stamps.com enter risk now here's the show Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Johnny Ripper. Behind me now, we're calling this week's episode, Things Fall Apart. Ah, this very production kind of fell apart today. Just as I was about to sit down to record these hosting segments, I threw a cup of coffee onto my laptop in the fraction of a split second that I was dropping my coffee cup onto the floor. I I thought, oh, no, 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 I can't drop it onto the floor. So I corrected and threw the whole thing onto the laptop. That began about an hour's worth of screaming at myself and praying and hair dryers on the thing. And then, of course, you have to empty a pile of rice onto the table and put the thing upside down on a pile of rice. I had the wrong kind of rice, though. I had brown rice because, you know, I always prefer things brown. Anyway, we're still here. The laptop is on, obviously, although there's a lot of wiggly-waggly stuff going on on it, so let's just hope we can last through this episode. Things fall apart indeed. These are three stories of situations that went from dysfunctional to dysfunctional-er. In a little bit, we're going to hear from the New York-based writer and actor, Mr. Brett Ween. But before that, we're going to start with my good friend, John Flynn. Wonderful storyteller. Got to start here in New York. But now he's in L.A. and here he is at the Nerd Melt Theater in Los Angeles 
Where Risk Happens every fourth Thursday. Here he is now. This is John Flynn with a story we call The Great Escape. My story first started while I was still living in New York, and I've been living in New York for like seven years at that point, and I was sort of at that point with New York where I was like, you know what, New York? You can go fuck yourself. You know, uh, you don't need me. I don't need you. Maybe it's time for us to break up. At the time, I had been asked to come down to Key West to perform a one-man show I was doing at the Key West Summer Theater Festival. So I was like, oh, this is maybe perfect timing. Like, I'll go down to Key West, well, I'll date it for two weeks, see if maybe I want to move here. As you probably know, Key West is sort of has a reputation of being sort of like a gay mecca. I am a boy kisser, in case you haven't figured that out yet. Uh, I know I dress like someone who thinks Dave Matthews is a really interesting band. <laughs> Um, but I jokes on you because I don't know any Dave Matthews songs because I've never tried to date rape a girl. Um, it's it is the soundtrack to college date rape. Um, Anyway, so I was like excited to go down to Key West and be like, oh, this little gay place, maybe that's where I want to go. It's been my life. And it is a very sort of gay-friendly mecca, but it's also like right on top of a very redneck, hick, you know, like hick, hicky, hicksters. Is that a thing? I don't know. Like, um, So like I remember like when I first got there, like, I, like on one side of the street, there was a bar that advertised like the Miss Tranny USA pageant every night. And then on the other side uh, was another bar where it was like some fat bald guy in like a trucker hat playing a guitar singing a song called uh, that I assume was called That's Why I Smeared That Queer and got like everyone in the bar to sing along so I was like I'm gonna stay on this side of the street so you know like I took a red eye down and I got there very early in the morning I checked into my hotel and then I went to the diner that was sort of like attached to the hotel and it was completely deserted it was just me and the waitress and the waitress was sort of like Elaine Stritch's more jaded sister like she <laughs> She was, she was, she had that look where I was like, she could be 27 or 55. Like, I don't know, somewhere in there. She just had like this very worn face, very like road hard and put away wet. And I don't know what she's, she's not taking care of herself. That's all I know. Um, so, you know, like I order my breakfast from her and I order, you know, French toast and coffee. And she goes, well, what do you want in your coffee? And I'm like, I don't know, just milk and sugar is fine. And she sort of like puts her hands on her hips. She goes, what do you really want in your coffee? <laughs> And I go, uh, what are you talking about? And she goes, all right, look, you just got here, so let me explain something to you. Key West is really a drinking town that has a tourist problem. So what do you want in your coffee? And I was like, I guess Irish it up for me? So she does. Um, and then because I'm the only person there, she decides, why not just sit down with me while I'm having my breakfast and keep me company? But I was you know, jet lagged and whatever, so I didn't care. So I was like, are you from Key West? her eyes take on this sort of like glazed far off look and she goes, nope, moved here when I was 18 and I didn't read the signs and I didn't leave when I should have. That's the thing about Key West. If you don't leave when it's time, you get stuck here forever. And I was like, holy shit. Fuck, no wonder you guys are fucking alcoholics. Thank God. Um, so I finished breakfast and I say goodbye to her and now... That afternoon, I didn't have anything to do, but a friend of mine who lived in New York just coincidentally was staying in Key West at the time at a clothing optional resort for gentlemen only, 
And he invited me to come visit him there. And I had never been to such a place, but I was like, well, this should be fun. And it was very weird. I don't know if, if any of you have ever been to a place like this, but he had to meet me in the lobby. I had to show two forms of ID and I had to sign all these like non-disclosure contracts. They like led me through a metal detector and then they took me through like all this maze of like hallways that had like locks and like punch card things you had to get through. Finally, we get to this one door and as they're putting in the little code, my friend goes, are you ready? And they open up the door and it's like this huge courtyard. It's outside and there's this huge swimming pool and there's like 10 foot tall gates all around it and they're like super tall trees so no one could possibly look down. There's this pool and all these deck chairs and just dozens of naked men as far as the eye can see. And it was literally like that moment in Willy Wonka when he's like, boys and girls, the chocolate room. And like those kids, I'm just like over, like it's so beautiful, I can't even move. (laughs) And then like my friend behind me, like he's not singing Pure Imagination, but he might as well be. He just goes, welcome to Key West. (laughs) And then I'm like, wee! And I go jumping, leaping out into the courtyard to sample all the delicious man candy that is there. And uh, so I find this one guy and he and I start talking and uh, our conversation gets very sort of heated. And so I was like, oh, we should go back to your room. And he goes, well, I actually don't have a room here, so we have to go back to your room. And I was like, well, I actually am not staying at this hotel, but I'm staying at a hotel a few blocks away if you want to go there. And he's like, perfect. So we go back to my hotel room and we continue our conversation it's all fine and normal, except uh, his penis does, has this thing where it leans very much to one side, which in and of itself is not that uncommon for those of you who have one or maybe have encountered one. But what was specific about his was it leaned to one side, but then it straightened itself out at the end. So I felt like I was jerking off the lead pipe from Clue. So we you know, go about that business and we finish up. And I like go into my bathroom just to like wash my hands real quick. And I'm in there like not like a minute, maybe two. And I come out and he's already like been dressed and is out the door. And it's like, see ya. And at first I was like, how rude. But then I was like, "Ah, I didn't have anything more to say to him really at this point. Anyway, so good riddance. So then that night I go to the place where I'm going to be performing. And I will be performing in the crystal room at the La-di-da Palace. (laughs) Because it's Key West, and it's this, the La-di-da Palace is, it's like right in the heart of town. It's this sort of like restaurant that has an upstairs cabaret space. Now, on one side of the La-di-da Palace is a old school chicken farm, like this plot of land where people, it's like gated and like fenced in, and there's just chickens running around and like chicken coops outside. These people just raise chickens. And then on the other side of it is an old mansion that has been converted into basically a whorehouse. There's just like a wraparound porch, and there's all these women standing there fanning themselves, and a guy like on the sidewalk who keeps being like, there's girls here. You got girls? What kind of girls? You're like, we got all kind of girls here. And I'm like, "Mm, not today. Um... And so I go to the crystal room at the Ladida Palace and the crystal room is upstairs. Now normally what happens is there's two local drag queens who normally just trade off nights. And so for the next two weeks, I'm just inserted into the schedule. So it's like drag queen A, drag queen B, this guy. Then back to drag queen A, drag queen B and me. And so that's how it's going to be that rotation for the next two weeks. And so I meet these two guys and they're like the perfect match set of drag queens. There's like the slightly older one who's like a little more jaded, uh, you know, a little, you know, been there, done that. And then there's like the younger one who's like more like wide eyed and just like, I can't, life is beautiful. And like, you know, like the older, like the jaded one, like he's got the funnier one liners, but like the younger one like looks cuter in his outfit. So it all sort of works out. 
And then whatever happens, like regardless of which one of us is performing, all three of us end up just hanging out at the bar because we get the staff discount. And uh, because the Lauderdale Palace is sort of an indoor-outdoor place, it's not air-conditioned, and it's summer in Key West, so it's really fucking hot. So they just give us fans. So we just sit at the bar every night drinking like passion fruit Cosmos and fanning ourselves. And it's really seductive to live your life like that. I was like, Key West has really given me the hard sell. And you know, going down there, I was nervous because I'm like, I'm not famous. People don't know who I am. Like, I'm going to be doing this show. And I and it was a show that I talked about doing a musical with Betty Buckley and Debbie Gibson. I was like, people aren't going to know who they are. This is going to be ridiculous. I don't know if anyone's going to show up. But it turns out whoever did the PR for this event was like great at it. So it was like packed every night and audiences were loving the show. And I was just getting drunk with drag queens all the time. And I was like, this is amazing. I love this. I think I could move to Key West. I could totally see myself building a life here maybe even do drag uh, no uh, <laughs> too big and so anyway so it was like I was going to it was like the end of the two weeks I've been having a great time and I was going for my last show and I get to the venue the people who run it were just like oh my god we're so sorry we made a mistake we totally forgot we double booked the space there's gonna be a wedding going on tonight and I was like, okay, so the show's canceled. They're like, no, 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 uh, you're sold out. So we're still gonna have the wedding and we're still gonna have your show, but we're just gonna put like a wall up in between <laughs> in the middle. So like, you'll be here and then the wedding will be there. And I was like, are you sure? I mean, like, this is someone's wedding. They're like, nope, this is what we're doing. And I was like, okay. And it was like, not even like a wall that like went up. It was like a cubicle wall. <laughs> So, like, I'm over here being like, so Debbie Gibson's kind of weird. And then there are people over at a wedding who, like, every so often someone just, like, poke their head up and be like, what the fuck is going on over there? And I can't blame them. Who wants a one-man show competing with your wedding? Nobody. Anyway, so, like, I'm sort of disappointed that this is how, like, it ends. This is how I'm going out. And so, like, I finish the show. I sort of rush through it. And I go back to the dressing room. And the two drag queens are there waiting for me. And they're like, oh, my God, we heard what happened. We were so sorry. We rushed over. But we've got two surprises for you. we got two presents for you. Are you excited? And I was like, sure. So one of them takes out this really long, thin joint. It was like a pin, but it was, like, super long. So it was like a Virginia Slim of joints. <laughs> And it was like really nice Florida weed, I guess. So like we smoked that and it's like a lot of fun. And then they're like, all right, are you ready for your next surprise? And I'm like, bring it on. And so one of the walls in the dressing room was just like floor to ceiling, like cabinets that had been locked the whole time. I didn't know what was in them. So they unlocked them, they open it up and it turns out this is where they keep their wigs. It is five shelves of just like mannequin heads with wigs on them. And again, it's another Willy Wonka moment where I'm just like, this is beautiful. <laughs> And I'm just standing there like stone trying to take it all in. And then like the younger drag queen just goes, wig party! <laughs> and oh my God, you guys, if drag queens ever invite you to a wig party, you have to fucking go. <laughs> it is amazing. It was so, you have no idea like how much like a good wig can just change your life. You're just like, maybe I'm meant to be this person. Like, I don't know. <laughs> maybe I should have bangs. I don't know could be so like we all are just like playing with the wigs for like half an hour then we finally like settle on like our look for the night so I do this sort of like Tina Turner beyond Thunderdome like just like batshit crazy hairdo the young one has a sort of platinum blonde afro like Dolly Parton in nine to five and then the, like the older one has a sort of like reddish Lucille Ball like kind of sassy number so like we're stoned we've got our wigs on we go down to like our little spot in the bar and we're like this bizarro high concept Charlie's Angels <laughs> 
So we're like sitting at the bar that we sit at and it's right by like a door, like one of the entrances to the place. And like we see like there's two white his and her scooters that say like just married on them. And you know, and so like we're drinking and fanning ourselves. We're sort of like making fun of them. And like at this point, the wedding has taken over the whole venue. So it's just like the wedding is going on everywhere. And you know, like and they're like sort of like telling me about the, the couple who got married because they're local people and they're like, the bride is a former beauty pageant contestant and the groom is a former homosexual. And I was like, hold up. <laughs> um, okay, that happens, I guess. Does the bride know about that? And they're like, oh yeah, 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 everyone knows. It's totally cool. He really loves her and he's not even gay anymore. And I was like, okay, uh, I don't think that happens, but whatever. And then at one point they like point them out. They're like, oh, there's the bride and groom. And the bride looked like what you would expect a former beauty pageant contestant. She's like, beautiful, but dead inside. Um, And then the groom is the guy that I hooked up with when I first got to Key West two weeks ago. And so without thinking, I just go, uh, that guy is not not gay. (laughs) And then, of course, these two drag queens, they like smell the gossip and they're just like, what? And I like sort of like, you know, explaining like, well, I first got here, I hooked up with him. And like the younger one is like, oh, like slightly scandalized. But the older one, you know, the Jada one, he's a little bit like, I've been around the block. And he just goes, prove it. And I just go, well, he's. "Mm, mm." The Jada one literally drops his passion fruit Cosmo. And the younger one just goes, oh, my God, the rumors are true. (laughs) And then they're both like, you have to say something. You have to say something. I'm like, no, I do not. I, A, do not know these people, and B, just did a one-man show in the midst of their wedding. I'm done. I'm out. I have shit on their marriage enough. I don't need to do anything more. They're like, no, 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 we'll do some shots, and then you'll say something. I'm like, I'll do some shots, but I don't think I'm going to say anything. But who knows? So as the bartender is making our round of shots, from down the street two other scooters come charging down the street and one of them, two homosexuals are on them and I say that because one of them was wearing like white booty shorts and a tank top that said silence equals death on it and he was yelling, you fucking lied to me, you fucking betrayed me, you said you loved me and the two other drag queens are like, oh my god, that's the groom's ex-boyfriend, they broke up three years ago and he has not gotten over it. And so they like drive up right to where we are and are screaming and we're like, we have ringside seats to this. We were so excited. We literally closed our fans. We could dramatically open them again and fan ourselves as we took it all in. And so they drive on their scooters and they park them and this guy, you know, and he's like chubby and out of shape and clearly he's been binging on Ben and Jerry's for three years. And he's like, yeah, like, you fucking, you fucking lied to me. How dare you? And the whole wedding is like, hubba, hubba, what's going on? And everyone like goes upstairs and, and he's like yelling. It's going on for like 10 minutes. So finally the groom sticks his head. And oh, like, and this guy's like trying to like damage their, his and her just married scooters. But he's sort of like just sort of like kicking them or like slapping them. And then he like... Will like try to like pick them up, but he's in not shape at all. So he just like lifts it like a few inches and then drops it. And then like the shocks absorb everything. Like nothing's happening to these scooters. <laughs> They're totally fine. And so he's just yelling and going crazy. And then at one point the groom sticks his head out of one of the windows and he goes, "Go home and stop embarrassing yourselves," because shame is like a consideration at this point. And then. 
the guy gets this sort of like adrenaline rush of like jilted lover and he's sort of like and he goes I'll show you embarrassing and he like picks up the scooter uh, like and like like this and he like goes to try and throw it but he like trips and is weak and so it ends up like hitting one of the like chicken coops next door and suddenly there's like feathers and like blood in the air and like it hit like the fence and like chickens are running all throughout the street and then like on the other side the whores are like this is like cutting into their business they're like shut the fuck up faggot and then like and then like people at the wedding are throwing down like cake and champagne down on these guys and suddenly like the cops are showing up so there's like sirens and all this and lights going and I'm sitting there at the bar with my Tina Turner wig and my fan and my passion fruit Cosmo and I think to myself alright Key West I get it this is the sign it's time for me to go home thank you all very much When I was 17, I left home for the first time to go away to college. My mom had a nervous breakdown. I don't mean she had like a funny haha nervous breakdown, like funny, like my Jewish mother is, is having a nervous breakdown with the separation anxiety or whatever. It's not that she didn't want me to go away to college. She would have killed me if I hadn't. She thought she was very liberal as I was growing up. She said I could be anything I wanted to be a lawyer or a doctor. <laughs> so my mom was funny. She was, she was sort of like a nice looking sort of young Joan Rivers-y type. She was inspired, I think, by Joan Rivers and she would constantly at some point during my childhood keep saying like, can we talk? Like I'm sure 800 million Jewish mothers were saying at the time. And like, I don't get older, I get blonder. <laughs> She had sent me to sort of a hoity-toity private school, and she was a member of the Mothers Association, as they called it back then. At one point, she found out that there was a luncheon that was going to take place at the even fancier cricket club across the street, which at the time was still restricted. My mom raised holy hell until they agreed to change the location. She was always ready to do anything for anybody, but it was much easier for her to do stuff for other people than for herself. I found out later, a very smart British psychologist explained to me that she had what was a raging personality disorder. And this would explain why when I was growing up, in between all her being so lovable and amazing mom, very well-liked and very social, she would go into these depressions. It was just me. My parents were divorced since I was in first grade. It would just be me alone in the house with her, her trying to sleep off her sadness, and me just trying to be very, very quiet, keep all the lights off, and me trying to make her laugh, convince her to snap out of it, not be depressed, and not take a bunch of pills and wind up in the hospital again. My mom was born with a hole in her heart. I grew up hearing stories about how she got sent off to Johns Hopkins and had to lay in a bathtub of ice cubes to get her temperature down low enough for what was really experimental surgery at the time. 
Now, she also had an older sister who died. But what this amounted to was that by the time she got better, even though they weren't the type of people to spoil their kids, they were just so incredibly happy that she was alive. So my mom got first row tickets to the Beatles when they were first in town and a little GTO and whatever she wanted. But this hurt her in the long run after she got divorced and she hadn't figured out what she wanted to do with her life because she always thought of herself as a sick little girl who someone, no matter what was going on, would swoop in and save the day. She was so well-liked and charming that most of the time someone would. She would flip out when my grandparents kind of tried to gently tell her, look, you need to take care of yourself and we can't supply you with money forever. And I think this was so terrifying to her that she just flew into a rage. And I remember her standing in her bedroom, my grandparents and I sort of around her and she grabbed the lamp, this glass lamp from her nightstand, unplugged it and stormed over to the window and opened the window. And we suddenly all realized, oh my God, she's gonna throw the lamp out the window. We all said, Mom or Sandy, stop it. Don't throw the lamp out the... And she threw it. We watched it sail over the lawn, about to land on the gravel pathway leading up to the house. And it, it didn't quite make it. And it landed on the grass, and it just thumped down. It didn't break. We were looking at her. She was looking at us. We were looking at each other. And she stood there for a second, enraged. And then she stormed past us down the stairs. She grabbed the lamp, came back in the house, marched past all of us back into her room. We're like, Mom, no, come on, no, don't. She threw the lamp again harder this time. And this time it made it to the gravel path and just exploded. My grandfather went outside, cleaned it up, and he said, we're leaving. <laughs> Even at the time, I thought, you know, if I weren't in the middle of all this, it would be funny. So when I did go away to school, it was pretty much of a full-fledged freakout. I knew it was going to happen, but I was kind of hoping I'd have a little bit more of a chance to get settled in before that happened. Maybe sign up for my classes, make some friends, check out the dining hall, find out where the library was, lose my virginity, just the basic, basic little things. But unfortunately... It pretty much happened right away during freshman week. I'd been placed in sort of a three-person suite on the first floor of what was, I guess, like the party dorm. And it turned out this room, the last couple of years, had been known as the party room. And so people were coming up to us, the few seniors who were around, leading us freshmen around, came up to me and my, my roommate, Zach, were saying, like, you got to keep the dream alive, man. It's the party room. Zach was this very smart, funny guy who put this incredibly scary poster of, like, the goth band Skinny Puppy up across the wall from me from where I was sleeping. And it, they looked like vampires. And he would fall asleep to this terrifying, it was like nightmare music, where I would sort of 
I'd fall asleep for a few minutes into it, just naturally falling into a horrible vampiric nightmare, and then wake up and open my eyes, and there'd be these vampire people looking right at me. It was horrible. But I had one up on him in terms of (laughs) screwing up his sleep patterns, because within a few nights, my mom started calling on our shared landline and speaking into the answering machine, and when I didn't pick up immediately, would start crying and screaming and being very loud, insisting that I come home right this minute. When she was leaving me messages, she would be in freakout mode. And it was a mixture of that kind of violent outburst and just painfully pleading, please come home, I need you. And I knew that she didn't want me to leave school. I knew from experience that this was going to be over. She didn't actually want me to come home. I knew I just had to wait it out. I would try talking to her during the day, or I'd pick up for a second at night and then unplug the phone. I tried talking with her reasonably, and she would just get more and more agitated. Still, I knew that within a few days, she would calm down. I knew she didn't actually want me to come home. So that Friday night, it was... I guess what turned into the first major campus party. And of course, this was in my room. (laughs) And of course, my mom chose that night to take things to a new level, which involved calling the college president and calling anyone she could get on the phone. So we unplugged the phone, and all these people partying in my room and in the hallway outside had no idea of the tempest that was kind of brewing. One of the assistant deans of students, I think, sort of quietly came by, and we ended up going back to her house nearby. She assured me that if my mom did, in fact, follow through on her plans to disown me, (laughs) which was news to me, they would find some way to work out tuition. I tried to sort of cogently explain to this assistant dean what exactly the situation was, what I'd sort of been through over the years, and certainly more what my mom must be going through right now psychologically. As it turned out, within a few days, my mom's kind of freshman year freakout did just suddenly disappear. It just went away the way it always did, which is that it was never explained. It was never spoken of. There was never any apology or conversation about it, it was as though it never happened, and I was more or less happy to have it that way, as long as she was calmer. I loved college. Once I was able to settle in and make friends, and this all calmed down, I was still like kind of a shy, insecure kid, but I was coming out of my shell a little bit, I was making friends, still hadn't lost my virginity, but it was only a couple months in. And I was finding myself. I was still fielding pretty constant phone calls that weren't quite of that magnitude, but I'd be on the phone with her once or twice a day sometimes, and often they'd be really, really fun conversations. But there were still other times, as I was used to from growing up as a teenager, of her just being scared and wanting me to provide answers and wanting me to listen and wanting me to make everything better. I'm a good listener. 
and I love my mom and we were best friends, but I couldn't quite take the wheel from her. I was constantly putting out emotional fires or trying to that would just come back. One night toward the end of the semester, I was sitting alone in my dorm room, reading through this book for my German literature and translation class. And the book was called Steppenwolf by Hermann Hesse. And I loved the class, but I hadn't even finished reading the book yet, and I knew I had to finish writing a paper on it, which was essentially our final exam for that class. I had just gotten off the phone with my mom, who was in a typical state for how she would be when I was just about to come home. She would sort of ramp up. And I was just off and on the phone with her for hours that night knowing that I had final exams to prepare for and knowing very specifically that I had to finish reading this book and finish writing this paper. She was especially worried at the moment about money. My grandfather had died and my grandmother was very ill. She had a brain tumor, which they couldn't totally remove. And money was really tight and she didn't know what she was going to do. Now, the most basic thing that anyone would normally say to someone like that very gently would be like, have you th thought of getting any sort of a job? But that was the one thing that no one was really allowed to say to her. She would sort of freak out if you mentioned that to her. And my mom kept calling and crying and asking me for solutions to what was going on. And then suddenly turning on me, saying like, you're up at school having the time of your life and I'm here. I need you. She'd actually called my film professor he, of course, called me into his office and said, you can go home if there's, if there's something going on. I was like, well, no, it's not really about that. It always felt like if I could do this very specific, gentle dance of making her feel like things were going to be okay, but defending myself, but not fighting back too hard. It always felt like if I said the exact right thing, like a video game, it would unlock the screen where she would be okay and take care of herself and stop screaming and stop crying. But I was never able to unlock the screen. Finally, I got off the phone with her for what seemed like the third or fourth time that night. It was getting late and I went down a flight of steps to my friend Brittany's room. Brittany was an English major and she was on a Hemingway kick. So I sat down on her bed. She was sitting at her desk, her back to me. She was telling me about how she wanted to go to Spain and see a bullfight. I'd grown up with animals. I'd had all these wonderful dogs who we thought of as part of the family. I never seriously became like an animal rights activist or anything. But right then, her talking about the bullfights, I suddenly became really incensed and upset. The thought of some animal kept in a pen and then forced to go out and fight some guy dressed up like a schmuck with a weapon and fight to the death just seemed disgusting to me. And I told Brittany that. It's not noble, this is barbaric, and I can't believe that bullfighting is still allowed. You know, this is not civilized. This is cruel. And Brittany was just like, I don't know. I just think it's cool. <laughs> Her back was still to me, and she didn't realize how upset I'd become. 
Back in my room a few minutes later, I tried getting back into the book, which was still <laughs> pretty constantly centered on this depressed German guy wanting to go back to his room with this really terrific razor blade, as I remember it. And my mom called once again, and I was on and off the phone with her for another few hours. Sitting there, the narrative that I kept reading really seemed to mirror my own anxiety. During the last year of high school, I kind of echoed my mom's own behavior by sleeping as much as possible, just to kind of not be awake and not have to deal with the anxiety of being around this person who kept trying and in fact attempting to kill herself and constantly having a lot of stress put on myself to fix things in every possible way. Now that I was up here in college, I actually really enjoyed my life. I'd never truly been depressed before, but I realized the happiness I was feeling in this new life away from her was just in this weird vacuum. I was always gonna have to take care of her and I had no way, really, of taking care of her. I was always going to have to be doing some exam or finishing a paper or eventually having a job and not being able to concentrate on it because at the spur of the moment, I'd have to run home or I'd have her calling my teachers or eventually my bosses. There was no end in sight to all of her problems, so I could easily imagine someone running back to their bleak German room. I picked up the book a few more times. I realized I was reading the same bits over and over again. I was exhausted. I decided to try and go to sleep and pick up in the morning. I tossed and turned. I couldn't really get a good night's rest. And I woke up probably around five in the morning, maybe a little bit earlier. The sun was maybe out just a bit. The dorm was quiet. There was no way I could get this paper done, let alone all my exams. I kept expecting the phone to ring, because if I was up, it meant she could be up. And I realized that pills really would be the easiest way. So I went around my dorm room, trying to think of the one thing I might have. And after a few minutes, I found that big bottle of Tylenol. <laughs> and I figured, if you took enough of anything, it would kill you. So I grabbed a big bottle, filled it up with water, and tried to swallow as many of the pills as I could. It was hard to swallow all of the pills, and suddenly it just exploded up at me. Like this violent force. It was like I was in a comic book. There's that moment where, for whatever reason, all this cosmic life force emanates inside the one guy. It was like He-Man with, I have the power! I wasn't some guy, like, sadly throwing up after a party. This was like the universe was flowing through me in a moment of cosmic reboot. My room wasn't that big, but it like shot out like this girder from my mouth to the opposite wall for what felt like minutes. And while this was going on, nothing else existed, and I was actually very calm. I thought, oh my god, this is a real thing. I'm projectile vomiting. This is kind of neat. 
And then eventually it stopped. My room was covered in puke. I didn't know then that in the coming years, my mom's situation would grow worse. All the friends and family members who for literally decades helped her both emotionally and even financially and materially were, they would just very, very slowly fall away as my mom's behavior became more and more difficult to handle. I didn't know that then. As close as we were, as much as there was no possible way she could ever have truly pushed me away, nothing I could do, ultimately, was really going to save her. Twenty years later, sitting in my apartment in New York City, I would get a phone call telling me that after all this time, she'd finally done what she had so often threatened to do. She had been evicted from one apartment. She was about to be evicted from another apartment. And I let my machine pick up because after offering to come in and help her sort things out and not getting a call back, I just wanted to stay out of it. I listened to the message a few minutes later and it was the landlord saying that they'd had to let themselves in because my mom wouldn't answer her door. By the time they'd gotten in, she was already gone. As I listened to that, I didn't realize what that meant. I thought, she's already gone, so she got out of the apartment. And then it hit me. I had no idea that that my mom would actually kill herself. And so I stood there in my dorm room, five in the morning, surrounded by a sea of vomit. And I didn't know anything. And I didn't know whether I was going to die or not. But I, I realized as I was standing there that I guess I didn't want to die. And that however bad our situation felt, I wanted, I guess, to be okay. So I, I did the only thing I could think to do. I called my mommy.
This is Risk. This is El Perro Del Mar behind me now. And we just heard from Brett Ween, who you can find on Twitter at Brett Ween. Our final story for this week's episode is from a regular, a favorite of ours, Melanie Hamlet. Someone came up to me just the other day and they said that one of their very favorite stories is one that Melanie told on an episode that is no longer available for free, but you can find it in the albums section of iTunes. Those classic episodes from our first season are there for just 99 cents each, as well as our all-star episodes. So there is a lot more risk to be had if you go to the album section of iTunes. Anyway, Melanie is a world traveler and a wonderfully crazy lady. You can find her blog online. It's called Wandering Narcoleptic at MelanieHamlet.com. Here she is now with a story we call All in the Family. So uh, ever since I was a little kid, I was always trying to fix my family. When I was four years old and my sister was seven, my dad left home to go and marry the woman that he'd been having an affair with for years. And uh, we didn't really know why we were supposed to hate this lady. Like, we didn't know the details of what happened. But it was very clear that we're not supposed to like this woman, because my mom never referred to her by her name. She was always a pronoun. She, you know, she hated the woman clearly in her tone. So uh, we decided that we were going to get rid of this woman who smells like cats and cigarettes. So we plotted and schemed. Like we would go to my dad's house and we'd be watching TV and he would be like, oh, that lady's pretty. Make some comment about like the newscaster lady. And then when Mary Margaret, our stepmom, would come home, we'd pull her aside and we're like, Mary Margaret, did you know that daddy's got a crush on the lady on TV? He said she was pretty. And we thought that Mary Margaret would be like, what? I'm gone, you know? But of course she was like, oh, <laughs> you know, and... Uh, so then after that, we, like, we kept upping the ante. We're like, all right, we've got to get rid of this lady. So on New Year's Eve, they had like a, you know, a party with all their adult friends. And we took all of the names of all of the women in the party. And we wrote them on a piece of paper and we put it in a hat. And we made all the men at the party, who were all married, draw a name. And then we were like, now you have to kiss the name on your piece of paper to try to make my dad cheat on my stepmom. And then she'd be like... I'm leaving, you know, and that never happened. She never left. <laughs> They're still together like 30 years later. So our time, we, we just accepted that we weren't going to be hanging out with our dad a whole lot anymore. And, and when we did hang out with him, it was kind of weird because my dad's never been like a kid person. He, he's great with adults. He's hilarious, but not kids. And so we go to his house. He had no idea what food to give us. He'd be like, what do you want for breakfast? And we're like, pizza, you know, and we'd have like Lucky Charms all day. And his idea of entertaining us was making us watch football all day. And we were like, we want to watch the Smurfs. And, uh, 
And then he would give us strange advice, like really dramatic life advice out of nowhere. He'd be like, girls, you need to know one thing. Men are awful people. That's where all the rapists and murderers are all men. And we're like, okay. And he was like, but if you go on a date with one, make sure you order the salad. And we're like, what? <laughs> and we're like, I'm like, I don't like salad. Can I have chicken fingers? He's like, whatever, as long as it's cheap. Because if you don't order something cheap, you'll have to pay for that later. <laughs> and we're like, <laughs> and we're like, okay. Um, so anyway, <laughs> so our quality time with our dad uh, usually was on vacation. With one week out of every year, we'd go somewhere and we'd have seven days with him straight uh, instead of these like random weekends with him. But again, on family vacation, like he didn't really know what to do with us. Like he would sit and wa- eat Oreos all day and drink his pink wine and and watch CNN and football. And my sister and I would want to go ride go karts, and he'd take us to go ride go karts, but he wouldn't ride him with it. He just like sit on a bench and watch us ride goat carts. So eventually, you know, when when we finally became teenagers, you know, like when you're a teenager, you finally realize that your parents like kind of suck or, you know, I mean, you start criticizing and questioning them instead of being like, okay. And uh, so we became more, you know, rebellious and uh, we started taking advantage of that like divorced dad guilt, you know, (laughs) and uh, So uh, we went to Cancun one year, and I think I was like 13 or 14, and my sister and I got this great idea to get on a bus and go to Senor Frogs in the middle of the night. I don't know if anyone's been to Cancun, but that's kind of crazy to do if you're a 13-year-old. It's like in downtown Cancun. We totally got away with it. So then the next year, I was like becoming more and more of a rebellious in all areas of my life. We went on the cruise, which is now called (laughs) the cruise from hell in our family. Because my sister, when we got on the cruise, they punched my ID, which means you're 18 or older, because I had like big childbearing. I was like 15, but I looked like 23. And so that meant I could drink the whole week. So my sister and I, the first night at the bar, we were like, tried to pay cash for some drinks. And they were like, no cash, you have to charge it to our room. So we were just like, looked at each other and we're like, fuck it, you know? And like... (laughs) All week, we just fucking drank. And we were, like, buying shots for other people, you know. I started, like, a gambling habit that week. Um, Every time we go to a port, I would, like, get off the boat, and I'd, like, shoplift. (laughs) I'd, like, steal, like, pipes. And I'd get back on the boat and find someone, like, some guy who'd smoke me up. I, like, hooked up with guys all over that boat. And I got fingered in, like, the fucking atrium of the Groosh. It's like a sick... Like, the atrium. Like, this giant staircase, you know. Um, And so, on our last day of the cruise, we're sitting across the table at breakfast. And my dad and Mary Margaret, like, slide a bill across the table. And they're like, there's a $1,500 bar tab. And we haven't been to the bar all week. And we're like... (laughs) So, anyway... They banned us indefinitely from family vacation because of the cruise from hell. So what that means is that we basically never see our dad anymore because that was really the only quality time we got with him. 
So from then on, it was just me and my mom and my sister. But then shortly after that, my sister went away to college. And so it's just me and my mom. Now I'm like already becoming like super rebellious, but now I'm like full on. And I've, all my friends are all like drug addicts and stuff. So I'm just like, you know, in that, that stage where I'm just like, fuck everybody, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like I'm going to self-destruct. And I was like, drink and smoke pot before school every day. Every Wednesday I took acid at school. I don't know why. Um, I, was, I was working at Piggly Wiggly at the time as a cashier and I would like steal cartons of cigarettes and then at parties I would like trade it for, for bumps of coke you know like anyway I know. oh god um, so anyway finally my mom ends up finally getting a boyfriend and I'm just like who the fuck is this guy? Now I've got like another adult in my life where I'm like, ah. and so uh, I just start torturing her. <laughs> She's like happy finally. And uh, like, I got myself a boyfriend and it like, my curfew is like 11 o'clock at night. And I would come home at 11 o'clock at night and we would like park in the driveway and then we'd crawl in the back of his truck and fuck in, my, <laughs> fuck in our driveway. And my mom would always like flick the porch lights on and on. And she'd send Fifi Marie Hamlet, our toy poodle out to like, bark at the car, you know, <laughs> and I would just be like, open the window, I'm like, I'm coming, you know, <laughs> not really, not that way, <laughs> anyway, um, and, and uh, like, she found my pot one night when I just passed out on the couch and was just like, wandered upstairs, the next morning, she woke me up, and she was standing over me, and she was like, I found your marriage one of that this morning, and I'm like, well, what'd you do with it? And she's like, well, I flushed it, of course. And I was like, you owe me $150. And she's like, that's not crazy. I don't owe you anything. And I was like, fine, I'm just going to go buy another bag. Is that what you want me to do? You know, like, who talks to their parents like that? <laughs> and my boyfriend at the time even convinced me to get tattoo, like this awful tattoo. And I was like, didn't really want to get it. But I was like, it'll piss off my mom. I'm stuck with this fucking thing for the rest of my life. I don't even know. It's like a pet. It's a dream catcher on my stomach it makes no sense um so anyway i finally <laughs> and that thing in the middle i still don't it's like a horse or a pal, i don't even know what it is um my boyfriend's in jail in prison for 10 years now anyway ex-boyfriend uh anyway, so finally things came to a head on june 12 1995 when i got arrested for shoplifting and drug possession. They take me down to the Williamson County Courthouse and they like strip me down and they search my hair and they make me like bend over and pull apart my butt cheeks and cough to make sure I don't have any drugs in my paper, you know? And uh, I'm like, oh. And, uh, and they put me in the orange jumpsuit and then they make me spend the night. And the next morning, my mom comes and gets me and she doesn't say anything on the car ride home and I'm just like, Okay, this is probably bad. And finally, she takes out her phone. Like, this is like 1995. It's like a suitcase cell phone. She takes out her cell phone and she calls my dad's house and she answers the phone. And my mom's like, Mary Margaret, this is Judy. <laughs> you and Bob need to be at my house at five o'clock tonight and do not be late. And then she just like hangs up the phone and starts bawling. Now, I have never seen my mom cry, I don't think. I mean, I, maybe at her mom's funeral, at, but she's like me. She doesn't like people to see her, like, weak or whatever. So I'm like, oh, man, this is bad. 
So at five o'clock that night, Mary Margaret and my dad show up at our house. And Mary Margaret and my mom haven't seen each other in like 13, 14 years or since the affair. Because my stepmom has avoided everything to not upset my mom. My sister's high school graduation, everything. So now they're just like eyeball to eyeball. And my mom's like, (laughs) you know, come in. And like sits them down on the couch and takes a big deep breath, and she just fucking lays into them. Was like, I raised these kids by myself for fucking years. You know, just like you guys had your affair and blah blah blah. And my dad and stepmom are on the couch, and they're just like, <laughs> like sinking into it. Like, what the fuck are we doing here? Why is she doing this to us? And finally, when she's done, she's like, <sighs> she like, you know, does this, and she's like. Well, and like she's she's like so light and happy now, and she's like, now Melanie has something to tell you. <laughs> I'm like, thanks, mom. Well, I just got arrested, and I'm on house arrest for the whole summer. I'm on state probation for a year, drug test for a year, uh, lost my license for a year, and I'm banned from the mall for the rest of my life. <laughs> and they just like are looking at, like, they're like, uh, and then they, like, look at each other, and then they start dying laughing. <laughs> and my mom and I are like, what the fuck? And, uh, and finally, Mary Margaret goes, I'm sorry, Judy, this isn't a funny matter, but honestly, we thought that you called us over here to tell us that you were dying. <laughs> and my dad was like, yeah, I knew there wasn't a chance in hell you let this one in your house unless you were dying. <laughs> and my mom's like, I'm not dying. You know? <laughs> and they were like, what a relief. And I was like, yeah, I just got arrested. No one's dying. They are like, well, that's my dad's like, that's a good ending and I'm like you're right this is good news it's like that moment in Steel Magnolias you know, you know they're like oh no anyway so, so but she was like oh god no it's not worth going to anyway so um anyway uh so we start talking logistics of house arrest and my mom's like I can't handle her anymore you need we need you know shared custody like so my dad's gonna, gonna take me four nights a week my mom will have me three I'll go to work with Mary Mar yeah because I can't be alone on house arrest ever and uh so they work it all out it's like easy peasy and then they're like an hour later we all go to Red Lobster together and have a big family dinner I mean, we're like drinking sweet tea and eating shrimp scampi and we're laughing and talking. And I'm like, for 14 years, they fucking hated each other. And now, like, it's fine. And I called my sister that night. I'm like, you will not believe who I went to dinner with. And she's like, no fucking way. Um, so that summer, I spent the whole summer on house arrest. I ended up hanging out with my dad a lot, you know, for the first time, really, my whole life. And Mary Margaret. And, uh, you know, like, we joke all the time about how I'm a convict, and we watch, like, Murder in the First, <laughs> these really depressing, like, like, really depressing movies about jail, and, like, less than zero. And I'm, I, I spend the whole summer, like, reading books, like Flowers in the Attic, and start liking reading again instead of getting high. And, and uh, Mary Margaret takes me to the pool. Like, I, I end up, like, enjoying them because I'm kind of an adult now, and they get adults. And my mom and I... Oh, this is one thing I forgot to tell you. My mom and I had gotten to the point where we were so, had hated each other, or not hated each other, fought so much that we couldn't even talk to each other before I got on house arrest. We literally talked through the dog, Fifi Marie Hamlet. Like, I'd be watching TV and my mom would be like, 
say. That's how you know Fifi's talking. She said, say, say, I think Melanie should go do her homework. (laughs) And I'd be like, say, I think Melanie should keep watching Law and Order, you know? And, uh, and... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and that's how we would talk, because my mom knew I would never be a bitch to the dog. <laughs> right? I mean, she would tell me, go do your homework. I'm like, no! You know, but okay, say, I think... Anyway. Uh, <laughs> so now that I'm on house arrest and we have a break from each other, we get along great. We're talking to each other now and not through the ambassador, Fifi. <laughs> um, so anyway, you know, that I end up getting straight A's. I end up getting off probation early. I end up saving up money, buying a truck, going to a college in Montana that year, uh, you know, because I, I was, got arrested when I was 17, and got great grades. And, and when I was a senior in, in college and I was graduating, my whole family came out to Montana. My mom, and she's now married to that boyfriend, and, and my stepmom and dad and sister. And I'm sitting around the table, and I'm like, motherfucker. Being an asshole bitch teenager who got busted with drugs, I fucking saved this family. (laughs) That's how you do it, you know? And a couple years later, my dad ended up inviting me and my sister back on, after 10 years of like, of banning us, we got invited back on family vacation. I just got back, that's why I'm so tan. We we went again this year, and this time I got fingered by two fucking guys. Thank you. That is all for this episode, folks. This is Valley Lodge behind me now. That's our dear friend Dave Hill's band. This is Kiss Me, I'm Drunk from Valley Lodge's latest album, Use Your Weapons. Lots of big risk live shows coming up. On April 4th, we are in Reno, Nevada. On April 11th, we're in Philadelphia. On April 5th, we are in Pittsburgh. And May 10th, We're in Boston. Now, for the Pittsburgh and Boston shows, we are still taking pitches. So if you live in Pittsburgh or Boston and you'd like to pitch us a story uh, so that maybe you can get up on stage and end up on the podcast even, go to the submissions page at risk-show.com slash submissions. And if you want to find out about tickets to any of those live shows, go to risk-show.com slash Tour. Please don't forget that we also have a school at the storystudio.org. We teach one-on-one training over Skype or in person. Uh, we have all sorts of workshops, including an online workshop of video lectures and a workbook that you can work in your own time. 
We also do corporate workshops for staffs of businesses. So look us up at thestorystudio.org. And then be sure and follow us and spread the word to your friends about the show. We're on Twitter and Facebook at Risk Show. On Twitter, I'm at the Kevin Allison. And just as I was set to record this announcement, I got word that for the Max Fun Drive, 2,678 people either became new members or upgraded. It was a smashing, crushing success. I'm not sure how many of those are Risk fans. Uh, we'll, we'll know more soon. But anyway, thank you so, so, so very much to all of you who gave to the big fundraising drive in these past couple weeks. I'm sure there's something I'm forgetting right about now, but I just want to wrap up before the computer gets any more wiggly-waggly and things fall apart. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. I have the power!